Well, good morning to you all. It's a great Sunday. Uh, we have a God whose name is worthy to be praised. And I appreciated the worship team and, and the, the songs they had for us. Have you ever been in a group where there was a confrontation that created tension so thick in the air that you just sort of stared and had no idea what to do or what was going to happen next? This morning we'll read about a confrontation between the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter that no onlooker would ever forget. We're in a series on the book of Galatians. We started last week, uh, and this book was written to the churches in the Roman province of Galatia. There's a set of churches that Paul visited on his first missionary journey, established churches, spread the gospel, and... uh, also came back and revisited these towns in his, uh, in his next two missionary journeys. So last week we talked primarily from chapter 1, and we, looked how the, we saw how the book of Galatians was written in response to uh, some teaching that had occurred in these towns after Paul left from his first missionary journey. Some teachers had come in, and they taught and talked about a gospel that was different than the gospel that Paul had. And we looked at uh, some of the factors that made this different. Uh, And one of the conclusions that we come to is as we look at the book of Galatians and sort of gather exactly what this teaching was from the way Paul responds, is that they had the order mixed up in in what happened. Uh, Theirs started with belief, Yes, Jesus was the Messiah. Yes, you need to believe in him for eternal life. But then you had to get circumcised, and you had to follow the laws of Moses. You had to follow the ceremonial law. You had to eat the proper foods and do the proper ceremonial washing. Uh, And then God saves you. And Paul said, wait a minute, that's the wrong order. It's belief in Jesus as the Messiah, and then salvation. Done deal. And these, all of us agree, we need to obey God in our lives, both groups. But this obeying God comes, springs out of our salvation, springs out of this new heart and this new life. Matter of fact, I would suggest to you, it's impossible to obey properly if we're not saved. Because we don't have the Holy Spirit in our lives. We don't have that power. We don't have what it takes to please God with faith. Belief first, salvation. Then from that, just like a new baby being born, we can't help but show the signs of new life. Sometimes it's crying. But new life is what it is that we show. So then Paul talked about his personal history, how he received the gospel directly from God and not through the apostles or other humans. Well, this week we're going to be reading from Galatians 2, uh, verses 11 to 21. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Galatians 2, verse 11. Well, in this incident, Paul recounts to the Galatian churches about a time when Paul confronted Peter about his failure to live out the gospel properly. So I want to do three things this morning. I want to understand where Peter went wrong. 
I want to notice Paul's primary objection to this wrong gospel. And I want to talk about two ways the gospel is a game changer for all of us. So again, where Peter went wrong, the primary objection to this wrong gospel, and two ways that the gospel is a game changer. All right, let's read, starting in Galatians 2, verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those belonging to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, and we'll finish that verse in a moment. For now, let's just focus on what happened. First thing to notice is the name Cephas was Peter's name before Jesus said, you're Cephas, you're a stone. For now on, I'm going to call you Peter, a rock. So we're talking about Peter here. Uh, He came to Antioch. So this didn't happen in the churches of Galatia. He's telling them this story to fit into his argument, to fit into what he's trying to communicate in this book of Galatians. So what apparently happened, I shouldn't do this, I'm already in trouble. I'm going to go back a slide, back, forward. Can you scroll me back? I appreciate that. Then my second slide. No, one more. Hooray. Okay, so... uh, It gets confusing because, and I should have anticipated this in the slides, but there are two Antiochs that you read about frequently in Scripture. One is this Antioch down here in Syria, which is just north of Israel, sort of on that side of the Mediterranean Sea. And there's another Antioch that is up here in Asia Minor, actually part of this province of Galatia, sort of in the middle of what is modern-day Turkey. The Antioch Paul's talking about is probably the one here, most likely the one here, uh, north of Israel and uh, on that side of the Mediterranean Sea in in what is now Syria. And Antioch was sort of the headquarters of Paul and Barnabas. It's sort of the, the headquarters of this whole effort to bring the gospel, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Um. You see, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, and we'll mention that a little later on. Peter was headquartered in Jerusalem, and he was known as, he had the role of being the apostle to the Jews. I don't think, I, I think this came about by the call of God. This is, this is what, what Paul, what God wanted. And in any event, there, there was some kind of conference, and a lot of people think it's the conference that you read about in Acts 11 whether it was or wasn't. In any event, here's Peter in Antioch. He's left uh, Jerusalem, and he's in Antioch. Paul and Barnabas are there. Also, there are a bunch of other Jews, and there are people coming who are part of this, what Paul calls the circumcision group. And it's because of this group that's coming. So you've got all these people converging on Antioch. And so this is where it happens. And Paul's telling this story to make a point 
that's going to be important for his, um, his argument here. So what happens? Peter eats with Gentiles. Not surprising. Uh, Peter, although a Jew, in Acts 10, God shows him a vision of all these different kinds of animals. Says eat. Peter says, no, Lord, some are unclean. And, and the Lord impresses upon him. There is no unclean and clean anymore. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the gift of salvation is open to everybody, Jew and Gentile alike. And so the law, the Jews that follow the law before Christ, the law is now dead. They're dead to the law because the law couldn't bring righteousness. With the law came the sacrifice system. The sacrifice system was designed to um, show that sin was being covered, sin was being taken care of. And Christ said when he came, I am the sacrifice of God. I'm the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He became the fulfillment of those sacrifices. So the failure to achieve the law has been paid for by Christ. And so now the law isn't part of the equation. It's faith and trust in Christ. And so Peter lives like a Gentile, as Paul says later on. Um, So there he is doing just that. And then the circumcision group arrives from Jerusalem. It means circumcision, they thought, was a big deal that Christians needed to do, particularly Jews, but also Gentiles who became Christian. They should be circumcised. They should be following some of these laws. And um, so Peter, out of fear for them, separates from the Gentiles. Doesn't associate with them. And throws them under the bus, in that sense. Treats them differently from Jewish believers. Other Jews join in, and Paul says even Barnabas. Barnabas is Paul's sort of partner and traveling companion in taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And so Paul says, when I saw he was doing wrong, I confronted him. You have to recognize the, the, the Jewish mentality that Peter had. He grew up with that law of Moses and all the customs and traditions around it. There were all kinds of laws about what fabrics you could wear together in the same clothing. Uh, food you could eat and couldn't eat. Specific methods that you had to avoid in food preparation and ceremonial cleanliness. There was a way you had to wash your hands. There were things you had to not touch so that you could stay ceremonially clean and be able to take part in the worship of the temple. Well, what was the purpose for all that? In Leviticus, God says, you must not live according to the customs of the nations I'm going to drive out before you. This is before they entered the land. You will possess their land. I will give it to you as an inheritance, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has set you apart from the nations. You must therefore make a distinction between clean and unclean animals. And he goes on and talks about some of these distinctions they needed to make. They needed to make these distinctions as pictures to themselves of the fact that they are set apart to God. They're not like the other nations. They're... they're, they're, they're being held as God's chosen people. And these things they're going through is to emphasize to them, we're talking about holiness, not commonness. 
And so in that, in that idea was the idea that these things are important, and they were through the Old Testament. They were pictures of what was to come in Christ. Well, you know, by the first century, this sort of idea of being set apart and separated turned into kind of a full-blown mentality that said, you know, we've got this stuff and we're set apart for God and these nations, they're not. After all, they ate anything. They didn't wash their hands correctly, if at all. They touched everything. There's no other way to say it. They sort of were kind of dirty compared to the, the law that we followed in which God is showing us cleanliness is, is sort of being clean before him is the idea. They referred to them as sinful Gentiles, sort of as one word, sinful Gentiles. And, and uh, in at least one occasion in the New Testament, called them dogs. Jews felt a moral and cultural and national superiority. That was the temptation when you've got these generations of, of trying to follow the law. It was sort of bred into them. So whether we're, while we're not told specifically whether it's the food, the ceremonies around washing and eating, or just associating with the Gentiles that made Peter nervous about this circumcision group, but he withdrew. Under pressure, he apparently fell back on old habits. You know, I'm, I've never flown a thing in my life. Maybe a few paper airplanes. But they tell me in airplanes, some airplanes... This, the, this autopilot that you can set, preset a course into, that it's easily overridden by just turning the yoke the way you want to go. But that doesn't disengage the autopilot. So you're turning, the autopilot's going this way, and you're saying, I'm, I want to go this way. I don't want to go to Mexico, I want to go to Canada, going this way. And, but the minute you stop being active on that yoke, the plane will start easing back to the pre-programmed course. I think Peter knew the gospel. He knew the truth. He absolutely knew there was no difference between Jew and Gentile. But in the heat of the moment, in fear, he acted along familiar paths. The autopilot took over. Paul calls this hypocrisy. Peter knew better. God showed Peter, of all the apostles... The reality that the Gentiles were now being offered salvation, that it was a, a wide, this gospel is a wide open thing. And yet, here he was being the one to uh, separate from them, to act in a way that was different from that truth that he knew. Peter was acting inconsistently with what he knew to be true. He did not act in line with the truth of the gospel. Critical verse there, verse 14. Paul says he didn't act in line with the truth of the gospel. Now let's read Paul's reaction. Verse 14 on. So Paul says, When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, and not a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, 
know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because the works by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Wow, he gets down to the point. It's the kind of answer that I know when I was a teenager, got in trouble, and then my dad would sit me down and I'd just say, oh, get, get the lecture part over with and then tell me what my punishment is. And you say, Paul, yes, you know, tell him stop doing that. And, you know, but Paul gets this explanation. Why? Because there's something important here that he needed to get across to Peter and a critical thing that he wants to get across to the Galatians. That's the whole reason he's telling this story. So if we can be justified by what we do, then we are setting aside the necessity to depend on grace. You're ahead of me, I know. How horrible would it be to find out that a painful sacrifice you made, if you were God, is not really necessary. There's a great park in Pennsylvania. I'm going to go one more slide. Yeah, there we go. Great park in central Pennsylvania. And it has this uh, hill, 1,300 feet. And it's called Pole Steeple, P-O-L-E, Steeple. Pole Steeple. And it's this massive granite formation poking out of the hill at the top. So you climb the trail up the slope from, to the base of this outcropping, and you're faced with this rock several hundred feet wide, and about 50 to 70 feet tall. Well, what fun to get to the top of it and get that view. Now, there are two trails. There's a trail that kicks off to the right, goes around the rock face, meanders around, finally approaches from the backside, and is a gentle slope climb. There's also, sort of in the middle of the rocks, there's an opening. And if you use rocks like stairs and pull yourself up through a tight opening, you get to the top a lot quicker it's a little challenging. Well, when this was first discovered, what if the Pennsylvania State Park Authority said, oh, we've got to get people up to this top, and they make this big justification, and let's say that building this trail around it cost $5 million. It didn't. But if it did, if they had to build things to it and whatever, it cost $5 million. And then after they built that, somebody found, oh, there's this way up through the rocks. People can go that way too. Well, the state's going to be a little cheesed off. You made this big justification for spending $5 million. And it wasn't necessary to get to the top. There is also another way. Just like that unnecessary trail, if righteousness could be attained through the law, then Jesus' death was not absolutely necessary. 
It would have changed the whole dynamic of the night of the Last Supper. God the Son prayed to the Father, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but you will. It would have been possible. If there was any other way to provide salvation, do you think God would have sacrificed his son? Paul goes on in Galatians, spends much of chapters 3 and 4 sort of following up on this and demonstrating that the only way to salvation is through Jesus. Spend some time even talking theologically. We'll skip that part when we get to it. But, But he still makes this case. So we've talked about where Peter went wrong. And we've talked about, we've mentioned at least in this this verse, the primary problem of the false gospel. It means if there's a a legitimate false gospel, then Christ died for nothing. Now we're going to look at a couple of implications of what Paul does here that changes everything by its astonishing breadth and incredible depth. He talks about a salvation here that goes, is, is a paradigm shifter. It was for me. I hope it will be for you. What do we mean by breadth of the gospel? Well, we often think of the gospel as sort of baby stuff. Yeah, that's the stuff. People that aren't believers, man, they, we need to get that to them. And if you're a brand new Christian, yeah, that's where you start. You learn that. You get those things down. But, you know... <laughs> Those elementary truths. We've been Christians for a while. We're seasoned. We know the basics. Uh, What we want to do is to move on to deeper truths. The real meat of living our lives for Christ. The deeper teaching. We're ready for more important things. More advanced things. But here, Paul is talking to Peter, the apostle pretty advanced guy. And he is saying, Peter, you're not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. There are implications, Paul's trying to get across to him, there's implications to the gospel for every area of your life, and you are not acting out the gospel in your attitude. Maybe in your attitude toward other races. Maybe in your attitude of fear toward the circumcision group. Attitude is the key. The gospel, it sets this line that we have to walk according to if we're going to walk straight, a straight path. So I have to think, am I corru- conducting my career in line with the gospel? Is the way I spend money in line with the gospel? Are my family relationships in line with the gospel? Your sexuality, your view of yourself, how does that follow the line of the gospel? How about your past? How do you regard your past? How do you think about your past? Is the way we deal with our past in line with the gospel? I wonder, have I thought out the implications of the gospel as I deal with everyday struggle with my thoughts and attitudes? We may not agree with other people on various topics. Is my attitude and actions toward them in line with the gospel? 
It's as if the gospel is shooting out a line as a standard for our whole lives that we need to apply to everything. The gospel is not just ABCs. It's not just the baby steps. It's the foundation. It's infinitely broad. It's like a worldview. It's not its own set of beliefs, in a sense. It's a set of beliefs through which everything else is understood. That's what Paul's getting to with Peter here. It, set, it sends out these implications, and we have to think the rest of our lives about these implications for each area of our life. Paul did, uh, the gospel's not just infinitely broad, but it's infinitely deep. What do we mean by that? Well, Paul didn't just say, Peter, you idiot, keep associating with the Gentiles. It's the right thing to do. I would always prefer that kind of uh, lecture for my dad than the long one. But what was my dad trying to do? And what's P- Paul trying to do here? He's trying to get Peter to think about the implications of the gospel. He doesn't do it this way. He takes the longer route. Have you thought about the implications of the gospel? He's not worried about whether Peter knows what God wants or knows what the right thing is. Of course Peter knows the right thing to do. He's trying to shine a light on the fact that Peter... Uh, that the truth of the gospel is not yet penetrated to the deepest part of Peter's heart. The implications of the gospel have not yet reached complete saturation of his thoughts and attitudes. You know, I was listening to, flashing through some of the Christian television stations, and there was a group of, little discussion thing among a, a group of southern preachers, and they're talking about those sins that sometimes we fall into, and they sort of take us by surprise, like, well, why did I do that? Uh, and in their southern way, one of them said, it's like at that moment we take a big bite out of stupid. <laughs> and they're putting their finger on a truth here. We all need to work out the implications of the gospel in our life so that it penetrates all the way and gets the stupid out. So that everything we do, every thought we have, every attitude we have, So therefore, all the actions springing from that are in line with the gospel. You know, one example of this uh, is summed up in an article by Tony Schwartz. And it's entitled, The Enduring Hunt for Personal Value. And his main point is, uh, he's uh, he's one of these guys like Bill that advises companies and CEOs, and that sort of thing. He's got a best-selling book. Uh, But his main point in this article is, he says, we all, as humans, we all share a core hunger for value. We desperately want to matter and to feel a sense of worthiness. Why do we have this need? Because we're afraid we don't matter. We don't have worth. Well, how do we go about getting it? There's a number of ways we could. Some of the stronger human tendencies that we have are to look down on other people. Gee, if we can look down on them, we can feel a little better about ourselves. In our careers, I can look at my successes, my achievements, and I can have value and feel that because of how successful I am. In interpersonal relations, 
even romance. I need to feel desired. I need to feel loved. When I get that, then it's like a breath of life to me. I then have value and worth. Well, what are we doing with all those things? What's our goal? We're justifying our existence. We need to have worth. We need to feel like we matter. The reason you can't say to Peter, just stop doing that, is that's not going to permanently change. If it's coming from an attitude or a part of his heart that hasn't been permeated with the truths of the gospel. So Paul could have said, just stop it. He could have shamed Peter and maybe gotten a change in behavior, but it wouldn't have helped Peter. And it wouldn't have brought out this truth that that we all need that change of heart. And it seems to be a lifelong process of keep working that truths of salvation, truths of what we have in Christ deeper and deeper into our lives and and transforming us that way, conforming us to him. What Paul did was appeal to the gospel, the fundamental truths as a standard and measure, its implications essential to full transformation. It should be the end of our need to find value. Because the gospel is the only form of personal identity that's not based on value that is earned or achieved, but it's given to us by God. It's not based on our performance. It's based on His performance. So there's no up and down to it. It's steady. It means we are loved and valued by God, so we no longer have a need for an enduring hunt for personal value. If you're a Christian, the hunt is over. We never had the right to feel superior to anyone else. But because of the implications of the gospel, we don't need to. God's love and acceptance of us, His children, is such that they fill all of our psychological and emotional needs. The gospel, rightly understood, does that. It throws out that line, sets that line, uh, that we, if we conform to it, uh, has us doing the right thing. You know, in construction, they lay out the foundation, they rig up strings and that to make sure everything gets built right and straight. Um, Here's an example of a foundation that you're looking down on a concrete foundation and they've snapped a chalk line to show, I'm assuming, where all the framing lumber is going to go so that the wall ends up straight. Maybe you've seen in your house some imperfections where things didn't quite get straight. There's a couple in mine. But that chalk line has it so that building on this, if you stick with the chalk line, you're going to end up with something straight. The gospel does that. It's that chalk line from belief and salvation all the way straight through to Christ presenting us as a church, holy and without blame before him. That, that we, when we get full Christ-likeness, when there's the redemption, not just of our soul, but of our bodies, when Christ comes again. That's the other end. And, and the gospel snaps that chalk line 
We need to focus on that uh, for our lives. So my question is, what if Paul had an appointment with each one of us and knew us and knew our lives? What would he say? I'm not sure I'd be fond of meeting the Apostle Paul under those circumstances. But um, one thing you know, he would tell it straight. For me, it would be the same thing he told Peter. Think through the implications of the gospel and let it be a guiding and transforming line for your life.